Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Please visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you will find three separate speaker feeds with over 200 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Jocelyn. Hi, everybody. I'm Jocelyn, compulsive overeater, bulimic. Hi, Jocelyn. Thank you for letting me be of service and lead this meeting. Um, These podcasts are so special. I um, have uh, traveled quite a bit last year. I met so many fellows all over the world who really depend on these podcasts, so I feel connected to my fellows abroad that I met last year by being able to do this. Um, So anyway, I'll start at the very beginning. Um, I always like to say that I've been a compulsive overeater since the womb. My mom will tell stories of me in her belly, forcing her to eat things she never liked, never ate before, and has never eaten since. (laughs) And if she didn't eat them, she would get terribly sick. So I have no problem believing that this is a physical malady. It's not just a problem of the will. It's not just emotional or spiritual. I can't imagine I had too many emotional or spiritual issues in the womb. Um, So I really do believe there's a physical component to this disease. Um, One of my earliest compulsive overeating memories happened when I was about four or five. And I can remember uh, my mom made my favorite meal, which remained my favorite meal up until I became abstinent almost two years ago. Um, And I had my plate, and I thought to ask my mom for seconds. I don't know what gave me the gumption to ask my mom for seconds, because my mom didn't like me getting seconds, but I asked. And she said yes. So I had another plate, and I thought, okay, that works so well. Why don't I ask for more? And I asked for a third serving, and she said yes. So I ate that, and I asked for a fourth serving, and she said yes. So I ate that, and then I asked for a fifth serving. And this is a face I'll never forget. My mom stopped me, and she said, um, I'll have to stop you since you obviously can't stop yourself. And the look of disgust on her face was so real that it's like seared into my memory. I cannot forget the way my mom looked at me when I was like four or five years old. And I knew then that what I did with food was wrong and dirty and shameful, and I needed to hide it. Um, Now, the step work I've done in this program has revealed to me that that earliest uh, memory of compulsive overeating coincides with my first memories of my father leaving us. My parents had lots of problems, um, a very tumultuous relationship, and my dad would leave my mom and come back and leave and come back and leave and come back for about 17 years this went on. Um, And I guess, you know, reaching for the food was my way of coping with all these feelings that a four- or five-year-old could not have known how to cope with. Um... And I'll say now, I am, I'm in a few programs. Um, more has definitely been revealed. Um, <laughs> a fellow once told me, if you're an addict and you're only in one program, you're in denial. <laughs> and I, that, that's definitely true for me, maybe not for everyone. My sponsor also says it's the steps of the steps no matter what program you go to. So if you're working them, you're working them. But for me, I've had to go to several, um, several programs. And what I've learned through 
all my programs is I thought that the compulsive overeating was the issue. And it totally fits with what we learn in here. The eating isn't the issue. It's why you're eating. It's what you're trying to feed that's the issue. And what I found is just like there was never enough food to satisfy me um, since childhood, there's never been enough love to satisfy me. I have an insatiable desire for love that no mother, father, sister, friend, boyfriend, job, uh, anything can fill, and especially not food. But that was the first thing I knew to pick up at four, five, three, whatever years old. So anyway, um, I went on from childhood to through teenage years hiding food. I also remember when I was really little, um, I would go to the fridge in the middle of the night and, like, eat butter, like a banana. I would just eat it. And um, my parents would catch me and punish me or spank me. And they used to tell me this terrible story. I, I don't understand it. I don't think I understood it then. But it scared the crap out of me about Br'er Rabbit and how <laughs> Br'er Rabbit was going to kidnap me and torture me for eating butter. And I really believed that. I believed Br'er Rabbit was going to kidnap and torture me for eating butter, and I still ate butter. Like, I was that scared, but it, it couldn't stop me. I still ate it. I don't remember it having a taste. I don't remember why I did it, but I have these memories of, like, being little in the dark, in the middle of the night, opening the fridge and eating butter and looking to see if Br'er Rabbit's going to come and get me. You know, but I, I just kept doing things like that at night in the dark when my parents were gone, when my parents were busy, when my sister was busy, when no one was paying attention to me. I just ate and ate and ate and ate and ate and ate. Um, this other time, I was probably about nine years old. My parent, my mom had made some muffins, and they were for her job. And her and my dad went out on a date. And my sister, who's about five years older than I, um, was to watch me. And mom said, well, you can both have a muffin. That's fine. And uh, once my mom left, I had my muffin right away. And my sister could care less about her muffin. My sister got on the phone and talked to her friends and her boyfriend all night long. And I remember thinking, how can she not eat, be eating her muffin? Like, I don't understand that. And I would go upstairs to get away from the muffins, but they were, like, calling to me from downstairs. <laughs> and so I'd go downstairs, and I'm like, okay, I'll just take her muffin. No one will notice, because Mom said we could each have a muffin. There will be two muffins gone. No big deal. Took her muffin. Went upstairs, ate the muffin, went back downstairs. I'm sure you all know where I'm going with this. <laughs> I continued to go up and down and up and down the stairs until I had eaten all the muffins. And when my mom got home, we all got punished, me and my sister. So it just was, it's never been something I could control, and... People got mad at me for not being able to control it. And, um, and I, think, I think what I know now is that that experience just gave me this negative core belief that what you are is not okay. Not the fact that you overeat, but what you are is not okay. And for the rest of my life, you know, I've been trying to make what I am okay for people. And I will do all kinds of destructive things to myself to make me okay with you. Um, let's see, what's next? I, um, through my teenage years, I was always, my mom put me on my first diet at nine years old. And I lost like 30 pounds in 30 days. And my mom was so happy and so proud, and I got like a brand new wardrobe and 
um, it was wonderful. And what I learned was, you know, I was praised for what I could do with my body because it didn't matter that I was a straight A student and that all my teachers had wonderful things to say about me. The only thing that got my mom's attention, it seemed, was the fact that I could lose 30 pounds in 30 days. And when I look back on pictures now of myself as a child and as a teenager, it just breaks my heart because I was not fat. And at any given moment, I thought I was the biggest person in the room. Um, I developed early. You know, I'm taller than my mom by, like, half a foot, you know. Um, And, you know, I can see how, on some level, it freaked her out to have this child who was bigger than she was at 10. But um, I was okay the way I was, and I didn't know that. And there was no one there to reinforce that I was okay the way I was. Um, But I definitely didn't know it. so I um, I was always dieting, um, always trying to fit in, and never really losing a ton of weight because really at that time I didn't have a ton of weight to lose. But I always felt like a failure because I couldn't lose more and more and more. And I, I would always gain it back. Of course, it never occurred to me that that like, secret eating was what was making me gain weight back. Um, I just thought I was doomed. And I would pray, 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 pray for God to make me thin. Because if I were thinner, then everyone would accept me, and then I would be okay. Um, So my episodes of bulimia started, um, I think I had moments in my teenage years, but it amps up in college and then um, in my after-college life. But it wasn't something I did ten times a day, every day. Um, I talked to a therapist about it, and she gave me some explanation that made some sense to me that it was about control, and I was trying to control something, or I felt out of control. I'm like, okay, that there might be something to that. I can just stop doing that, and I pretty much could. I would do it um, maybe a couple times a day, maybe once a day, for a couple weeks, maybe a couple months, and then I'd stop, and I never... In my mind, at least, I never did it to lose weight. Um, I I remember I would, I would have a lot of anxiety, and I would start doing it. But it wasn't, in my mind, it wasn't for the purpose of losing weight. Um, sometimes it would be so I could cheat on my diet and not have to suffer the consequences. But I never thought I was going to actually lose weight. I just thought I wouldn't gain weight if I was doing it. Um, but it was something, like I said, that I could put down. So um, it wasn't really until I came into these rooms that I realized not so much. Um, I'll tell you a little bit more about what happened to get me into owing. I got married very young, um, and it was an abusive relationship with a recovering drug addict. Uh, I was 21. And so the notion, I mean, I just didn't get it. I did not get addiction. And I thought, well, uh, if he can stop doing drugs, then he can stop drinking. I didn't understand that probably if you're a drug addict, you probably shouldn't drink. So he had been clean from drugs for a year when we met. And we would go to happy hours and have a good time. And I could have a drink, two drinks, and he couldn't stop. He had to have five. And um, I finally realized he probably has a problem. Um, And he would go in and out of AA, 
And he, his stepfather was a long, an old-timer in AA, and I had a lot of respect for him, and he was always trying to get my ex-husband to, um, to stay in, in AA and get, and get sober. Um, and so that was the first place I learned about 12 steps. I had any notion about 12 steps. Um, and I remember one time my husband and I were in a fight, and um, I was at work, and he called me, and he was yelling at me and berating me. And I had this great job, and I was making, you know, more money than I'd ever made. And it was a nice office, you know, in a big, tall building. And I didn't want anyone to know that I had that kind of relationship. I didn't want to bring that kind of drama to the office. I was really embarrassed. So I was trying to, like, hush him, hush him, and get him off the phone, rush him off the phone. And I, I hang up, I get him off the phone, and I was just filled immediately with this rush and that I had to go get a candy bar. There was nothing you could do to keep me from the concession stand in our building. I had to get a candy bar. I was like sweating and like my heart was racing and I was hot to the touch and I got it as I was standing up to go get that candy bar. I get it. I do with food exactly what my husband does with alcohol. It calms me down. It brings everything back to zero. It makes everything okay, and I can't stop it. I can't control it any more than he could control his drinking. I understood it at that point. So I, I became aware that I had a problem then, but I still did not know what to do about it. So um, actually my, my first uh, venture into the rooms was through Al-Anon, and I got a lot of recovery in Al-Anon, or I guess you could call it a reprieve. Uh, it gave me the strength to leave my relationship, um, and, uh, but I didn't do the steps, and I didn't get a sponsor. So I stayed in Al-Anon for about six to nine months, um, left my relationship, moved to New York to grad school, and thought I was going to start a whole new life and everything was going to be fine. And um, everything was fine for a while. What I learned in Al-Anon was how to set really clear boundaries. And I also learned that it was my job to set boundaries, and it was your job to respect and keep them. I got to tell you everything you needed to do to make me happy, to never trigger me, so I never have to get upset and everything is okay. That's what I learned. And uh, by the time I hit my bottom that brought me into OA, I realized that doesn't work so well. People don't respond to you telling them what to do all the time. <laughs> Imagine that. So um, in New York, I went to like one or two OA meetings. Because um, like I said, I knew I had a problem. I just didn't know what to do about it. And I went in the rooms. I didn't relate to the people. Some of them were fat. Some of them were skinny. Nobody was giving me a diet. I didn't get it. So I went <laughs> to those two meetings, and I never went back. Um, and so it wasn't until... I had met this wonderful man, wonderful man. I call him the Lost Huxtable. <laughs> he was just so sweet and so kind and such a normie, came from a really great family that I loved, and he loved me. And finally, I had this great guy who loved me. I wasn't dating losers anymore, and I thought, as long as he loves me, everything's going to be okay. So I was happy. I was in a great grad, pro, grad school. I was doing well with my, uh, with my schooling. I was about to graduate with a great degree, and I had this boyfriend who was wonderful, and eventually he proposed to me, and I was going to be married, and it was going to be great, and I was so happy, and I was stuffing my face. He would go to bed, and I would go to the kitchen. It didn't matter whether I was happy, sad, scared, anything, any feeling. 
had to be regulated with food. And I, at that point, I thought, you know, I'm, I was scared that the other shoe was going to drop, that things were too good, that there was no way it could possibly stay this good. And so I was eating to deal with the anxiety of when is it all going to go to the crapper. Um, and I don't know. You call it a self-fulfilling prophecy. Do what you want. But it, went, it all went to the crapper. Um, one Sunday, my fiancé woke up and told me I was the most beautiful woman he'd ever met. He couldn't wait to marry me. I was such a great lady. By the next Sunday, we were broken up. I never saw him again. It was that quick. Just rug pulled out from under me. And I had made this man my higher power. As long as he loved me, then everything was going to be okay. And this person who was going to make everything okay just told me everything's not going to be okay and it's your fault. And that broke me to my core. And I proceeded on to lose about 30 pounds in about as many days because I stopped eating. I just, I, what I've learned about myself or what it seems about myself, I, I can, my disease presents in pretty much every way it can. I will restrict, I will throw up, and I will overeat. And if I'm feeling guilty and shame, that tends to be when I restrict. I won't feed myself. I won't nourish myself because somewhere emotionally I feel like I don't deserve to. And uh, after that breakup, I felt so low and so guilty and so broken and to blame for everything that I just could not feed myself. And I lost a ton of weight. But as it, as it goes with my disease, uh, eventually I started eating again and eating a lot. And like pints of this and double pints of that and just, Everything, everything, because it was time to start feeling again. You can only not feel for so long. So the feelings were coming up, and I had to stuff them down with food. So I gained that 30 pounds back and then some. And uh, that's when I found my, probably my second, uh, what do they call it, geographic solution. Um, so I moved from New York to L.A. Um, and thought, this will make everything okay. I'll get away from that relationship. I'll get away from that person I was and everything will be better. Um, but I was so angry and resentful by this time. I was angry at my ex for dumping me, and I felt like I had been had, like I'd been played, like he'd gotten the best of me, because he had made me, he tricked me into thinking that he was going to be there for me, and that he loved me, and then he wasn't. And so I was really, I was really wary of anyone who was nice to me, or anyone who made me feel good, because eventually they're going to pull the rug out from under me. And I became very aggressive because I was so bitter and resentful. And I moved out to L.A., and I was able to transfer um, jobs. So I had uh, the same job I had in New York I had here, the same company. It was a really easy move. You know, even to this day, I feel like it was God telling me to move. It really was. Everything fell into place. Um, but I came here, and I was... Uh, Again, making more money than I'd ever had at this job and doing really well at the job. Everyone loved me. I got, like, three or four promotions, uh, but I never got a raise. And they were doing some shady stuff at that place. And I have a big mouth. And uh, <laughs> I would say, this is shady. We shouldn't be doing this. And I would tell everyone who would listen, including all of my supervisors, and supervisors don't like it when you tell them how to do their job or they're not doing their job well. That tends to leave a bad taste in their mouth. 
And, but I kept doing it. And I got more and more belligerent about it. And I was going to protect the little people because, you know, other people were getting screwed over by these people. And, you know, I was right. And the toughest thing about giving up the character defect of self-righteousness is when you're right. <laughs> you know? And it was so hard for me to for me to get that. You know, I'm right. What I'm saying makes sense. Why won't they listen to me? They should listen to me. Man, was I wrong. And man, did I make a lot of enemies because I was so right. Um, and what I've learned in recovery, again, it, you know, what I knew at that point was I get to set boundaries. I get to tell people how they should behave, and then it's their job to do what I want them to do. And I've learned now that it doesn't work that way. You know, there were a lot of things I could have done differently at that job. You know, I'm allowed to speak my truth. I'm just not allowed to speak it over and over and over and over and over again. You know, I get to say, this. I'm uncomfortable with this. Can we make a change? If the answer is no, I have to decide what I'm going to do next. And that decision could have been to leave the company. All kinds of things I could have done. But I didn't want to take responsibility for my own life. I wanted you to take responsibility for my life. I wanted you to change so everything could be okay with me. And everything just came crashing down. My work was terrible. I still couldn't get over the guy. I was eating myself, like, in, to 258 pounds. I had gotten prediabetes, insulin resistance. I had a chronic GI problem for four years um, that no one could quite diagnose and finally, I started working with a doctor who could help me and basically told me, if you keep eating so many carbs, so much sugar, uh, you're never going to get well. And um, he had put, that doctor had put me on, uh, tried to put me on a protein diet. And I just, I couldn't, I couldn't stick to it. I just couldn't. I mean, I had pain that felt like someone was stabbing me over and over all day in my gut. And I still couldn't, you know, stop eating sugar and, and flour, white flour and starches. And um, I was, like I said, I was miserable at my job. I would go to work and cry in the parking garage, go into the office, then go back into the parking garage at lunch and cry, and then go back into the office, all the time reaching for that bottom drawer at my desk that was filled with my drugs. And my drugs were cookies, lots of cookies. Um, and I, I just, there, there was no control. There was no control. And so I was dealing with that. The one doctor who tried to put me on a protein diet that I couldn't stay on then started dealing with another doctor, um, and she, she gave me some drugs to help me lose weight. Um, uh, she encouraged me to get a trainer, and, and that building my muscle mass could help with the diabetes. And so I did all those things. I was taking those drugs. I had a trainer. I didn't have the money to be spending on a trainer, but I got the trainer. I was very good about going to my trainer, and my body started changing. And I did build muscle mass, but I didn't lose any weight. And so when I went back to the doctor for a checkup, my numbers were getting better, but I hadn't lost weight. And she says, Jess, I don't understand what's going on. You're doing everything I've asked you to do. Do you binge? And I said, well, <laughs> you know, I know I have a problem with emotional eating, but, you know, I really think I've got that under control. And that's what I told her.
But when I said it out loud in my own head, I knew it was a lie. And I knew something had to be done, but I still didn't know what to do. And I remember one night I was like eating an entire box of something that I don't even like the taste of, a combination of flavors that I can't even stand, and I could not stop eating it. You know, I was laid out on my couch, so full, crying, just eating. And I went to work the next day and Googled compulsive um, eating, and I found OA. And there was a meeting that very night in Santa Monica, which wasn't too far from my job, and I said I'd go. And I went, and I felt at home. I immediately felt at home. Everything everyone said made sense. I went home from that meeting and binged my brains out. It was the Monday Night Relationships and Sexuality Women's Meeting, which happens to be the crossroads of my crazy. So, <laughs> so it, was, it brought up a lot of stuff I hadn't been expecting. And for you know, a good while, um, every time I went to that meeting in particular, I would go home and binge. And to the point where I was talking to my best friend, I'm like, I don't think I should go back there because that is not working. <laughs> and um, thank God, you know, this voice inside of me said, well, if it makes you feel that uncomfortable, that's probably exactly where you need to be. And I kept going. And I, you know, they say you come in for the vanity, you stay for the sanity. I was the exact opposite. At that point, I could care less about losing weight. I just wanted to get some sanity in my life. I knew my life was unmanageable, and I needed some sense of normalcy. Um, so I dove into the program. Whatever anyone told me to do, I wanted to do. People said, do the steps. I said, let's do the steps. People said, the way you do the steps is by getting a sponsor. Let's get a sponsor. And I started looking from day one. And I wasn't really finding anyone that fit. People would come up to me and, you know, tell me, oh, I sponsor. Do you need a sponsor? And it just wasn't working. And um, I, I left that job that was making me crazy. Um, and I really think it was OA inspired that I was able to leave that job, although my sponsor, I think, begged to differ at the point at that time. I had gone to a how meeting, and they were doing a meditation. Um, that, and I was doing that chant, like, um, let go, let God. And somehow I got off rhythm and started saying, let God, let go. And that made sense to me because I didn't have the type of personality then that could let go of anything. But I did believe in God, and I, I just chose to have faith that if I could give anything to God, then God could let it go. I didn't have to. God would do it for me. And so the next day I went to work, and I saw this other thing that said, prayer is, is quieting yourself to ask God for what you want, and meditation is quieting yourself long enough to hear what God wants for you. And the combination of those two things back to back, I just got it. I just got it. I didn't have to, I didn't have to do anything that compromised my serenity, which is a word I didn't even understand at that point. But I knew that I was, I was tortured. And in that moment, I believed that I didn't have to be tortured, that I could follow what God wanted for me. And that's something I knew deep in my heart, what God wanted for me, and that God would provide for me, and I would be okay. But all, everything before that was fear, 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 fear. I believe in God, but I don't believe that God can do this. I don't believe that God cares about this. 
You know, I don't believe God will do this. And the this was always different. You know, the this was definitely the weight and the food. But it was so many things that God couldn't do. Yet I believed in God. So in those two, those two uh, things helped me um, have a really frank conversation with my supervisor at the time. And I was able to leave that job. And uh, I think it was two or three days after that, I went to an OA meeting that I had never been to before and had not, have not been to since except for once to speak uh, when my sponsee asked me to. And I walked in the meeting, and there was this woman there, and she was just, like, glowing. I was just, I was just attracted to her. And I just kind of watched her. And the meeting was crazy. You know, some meetings are just interesting. <laughs> and, you know, people were bumbling about, and I think we started late, and the secretary didn't know where this was, and someone didn't know where that was, and I just watched this woman, and she just looked at everyone, and she just smiled. But I could tell inside she was like, wow, really? <laughs> These people need to get it together. And I just, but she wasn't projecting any of that. All she was projecting was love and light, and I thought, that is exactly who I want to be. She is exactly what I want for my life. Beautiful in every single way, inside and out. And it just so happened she was the speaker. And so I got to hear her story, and I totally identified. And I've been looking for a sponsor for weeks, and nothing clicked. Nobody clicked. And as soon as I saw her, it clicked. And I went up after the meeting, and I said, you're it. If you'll have me. And she said she would. And that is the first day of my abstinence. Meeting my sponsor, becoming abstinent, has changed my life. It just has. I mean, there are moments today where if I choose not to focus on what I don't have, but to focus on what I do, I can honestly say I am living a life beyond my wildest dreams. Things are happening for me career-wise that are mind-blowing. I mean, I was so miserable in that job I've been talking about, and there are times now when I feel so fulfilled in the work I'm doing. I'm not getting paid what I want yet. But I am, what I'm getting inside and creatively is so, so, so rich. And I just believe that the money is going to follow eventually. But um, I've had opportunities to be of service in ways I never would have imagined, that I would even want to, let alone get the opportunity to do. And that's all been because of program. And I'll, I'll wrap up with this. I um, I so believe in a life of service because that's what I learned in this program and that's what my sponsor taught me, that I was asked to um, appear in a documentary about uh, survivors of domestic violence. And I said, yes, I would like to do that. And the company did not, they wanted to use me, but they weren't sure because they had to sift through a lot of applicants. Um, and they just said, can you put us, can you put, hold that week for us? And I said, well, I'm supposed to be going to Paris that week because a friend of mine's getting married, and I want to go to France, and if I go, I'll have to be there for a month because that's the way it's going to work out with my frequent flyer miles. So maybe I can do it. If I get back on this date and you shoot me the next day, then we'll be good. And so they said, well, we'd love it if you could work your travel plans around us. Uh, let us know. And so weeks would go by. They weren't getting back to me. They still weren't certain they were going to use me, and it was getting closer and closer to the time I needed to book my travel. 
Uh, so finally, I got all my frequent flyer miles together, and I, I was determined to be of service in this documentary. No matter what, I was going to do it, because I'm told that service works. And every, I kept talking to people about it because I was really stressed out because I wanted to go to Paris, but I was getting afraid that it wasn't going to happen. And everyone was like, go to Paris, you know. They can find somebody else to do this documentary. Um, but it just didn't feel right. It didn't feel like God. It felt like my ego and my will. So I waited and I waited. And I finally got all my frequent flyer miles together. I was ready to book my flight. And the flight I needed my return flight so I could get back in time to do the documentary and go to Paris was gone. So I had to make a choice. Either you get to go to Paris or you get to do the documentary. And I chose to do the documentary because I said I would and it would be a service. And it might, if it helps one other woman who, who is in a domestic violence situation, then it's worth it. So fast forward, um, I had applied to a professional fellowship in my field um, and several months before and had not heard anything back about it. The day I would have been in the air to go to Paris, uh, had I gone, I got a call from that organization saying, I'm sorry, it's so last minute, but can you come in for an interview? Of course I can. Uh, and I went for the interview, and it was amazing. It was lovely. It was, it was a God shot. And I got a call the next day that I was in the program. And the program takes place during the time that I would have been in Paris for a month. So what that teaches, and I mean, I, I can go back and back and back and back and still, and on so many levels, there are God shots about this, this issue. Uh, it was God who told me to apply to that program. I didn't have the money to submit my application, but I kept hearing this voice, just do it. Just do the next right thing. Press submit. And I pressed submit. And uh, then they said, okay, you've got another week to give us the money. Well, I didn't have the money in a week either. So I said, oh, well, I guess it's not God's will for me to do this program. A couple months later, they give me a call and say, we got all your materials, but we never got a check. Can you send us a check? I got to send them the check because I had money by then. And I ended up getting into that program. If I had not listened to that God voice, I would still be on my couch, you know, doing nothing and feeling sorry for myself. So a lot of program for me is just listen to God. Don't look too far ahead. Do the next right action. And it just so happens that the, the project that I'm working on um, in this fellowship uh, was inspired by the time I spent uh, in my uh, marriage being abused. So this shows me that God can use everything, everything for my good. Had I not been in that terrible situation, I would not be in this wonderful situation right now. So... It's just amazing what program can do. Program gives me the strength to, to make decisions I just would not have ever made on my own before recovery. Um, I, like I said, I'm, I'm living a really big life, and I really believe that there's, there's more in store. Like I said, I've, I've gone to other programs. More has been revealed. And I've gotten so much great recovery in so many 12-step rooms. Um, I just think this is a remarkable way of living your life. It really has taught me how to act on life rather than react to life. And all I was before was just one big, raging, resentful, bitter reaction. And I'm not anymore. So that's all I've got. Thanks for letting me be
Uh, I think I have a, a few minutes to take a question. Those are a lot of time. Um, well, you know, I've got my daily 10-step, and uh, I, how I do it, I do an A-E-I-O-U, sometimes Y and G, and the Y is Yahoo, the G is gratitude. Um, but I write that every night, and I send it to my sponsor, and I get to, you know, get out of my body and my brain, whatever I'm afraid of, resentful um, of, uh, whatever I'm feeling that day. And I always do, you know, what was my part? Every resentment, every fear, every night, what was my part? And I pray for God to remove whatever character defects come out of that. And then I tell my sponsor whether or not I need to make any amends for that day. Uh, so that's how I deal with, with resentment and fear and character defects. Oh, my goodness. That's really on the brain right now. I'm in step seven in another program. And what I can say is in, in, when I did my steps in OA, I think I got rid, you know, God took away some of the glaring character defects, the things that you just, everybody could see was there, the rage and the self-righteousness. And a lot of that was really lifted. Um, And now going through the steps again are all those, like, sneaky little subtle character devils um, that I didn't really know I had. And... uh, the thing that I'm using right now to work through them, it really talks about it in Step 7 in the AA, 12 and 12, that it's like we're, we're faced with a choice as we recover to stay in the pain of what we're doing or to risk the pain of doing what's necessary to stop doing it, to have those character defects removed. And that, that place, that... Uh, that uh, intersection of this pain or that pain, it's so difficult and so easy for me to want to stay in the pain of what I'm doing. Um, but I, I do a lot of contrary action and a lot of phone calls to fellows, and I use my sponsors in all my programs. I go to a lot of meetings, and I share, honestly, that I'm having trouble. Um, and that pushes me to the other side. And I can say I'm going through something right now. It's been really, really painful to give up this character defect um, because it keeps me safe. Uh, but pushing through to the other side has been so scary, but I'm realizing I'm much safer on the other side. So that's the best I can say.